Welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Podcast. We're a real community of people who are passionate about pursuing God and growing in our relationship with Him. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit northridge.org.au. All right. The problem of sin. So um, we're kicking off this new series tonight. We're looking at the book of Romans, which is super fun. Um, and why are we looking at Romans? Actually, before I start, I need to give credit where credit's due. Um, Matt McKenzie, where are you? He's just hiding over there. Um, Matt actually put this series together for us, um, so I'm really excited. Matt McKenzie, my favorite theologian. Yeah. That's right. Well done, mate. It's awesome. Um, so as a church community, we have had the immense privilege and joy of... I'd say over the like, last two years, we've experienced fairly consistent and fairly significant growth as a community, which is really fun. Um, and, but as part of that, I think it's really important from time to time to come back to the center of what is it we're gathering here around? What is it that we actually believe? What's at the center of our Christian faith? And the book of Romans is a really good way to do that. Um, Because in many ways, it's considered to be, it's certainly Paul's longest, but it's also his most complete exposition of the gospel of Jesus. If we were to, I heard of this church once that's actually going through Romans. They started at chapter 1, verse 1, and they're doing a verse a week until they get to the end. Now, that would take just over eight years, which is super impressive. Um, Kudos to them. We're doing four weeks. Um, But... But I reckon if we were to do that, if we were to go, it's such a dense, rich book. If we were to do a verse a week for just over eight years, I don't think we would explore all there is to be found in the book of Romans. Um, one, one writer that I, I was reading this week compares it to like a mountain. And you've got this incredible mountain. You want to get a really nice photo and capture what this mountain is. But the photo you're going to get, your representation of the mountain is going to look different from where you're standing. Um, And so the book of Romans is a bit like that. You're going to get something different from it depending on um, where you look at it from. Um, But tonight, what what we're going to do is we're going to to spend four weeks and we're going to look through what are some of the really key core themes that come out of this incredible book. We're going to kind of, we're only going to scratch the surface, um, but I'm really looking forward to it. Tonight we're kicking off at the beginning. We're kicking off with Romans 1, as you might see on the screen there. Um, and we're looking at this really difficult topic, which is sin. Now, if you're visiting on you here tonight, this isn't like our standard every week. Um, so it is a bit of a, a special welcome to Northridge. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes we, sometimes in the Western church, I think we can fall into this trap of focusing on like the nice side of God or like the nice side of Christianity. We really like to emphasize the bits that are really palatable to people from outside the church. But the problem with doing that, in a West, particularly in a Western context, and also in a really affluent part of a really affluent country, is that I think if we just focus on the really nice bits of God, um, and then we don't, we don't look at some of the harder parts of our faith, it's really easy to forget that we really need God, isn't it? You know, I think if you're in a third world country, it's a little bit easier to, to realize culture. I think one of the, the real shames, um, it's a real shame that we... Um, are so well off that sometimes we forget that we actually really need God. Um, a few years ago, I started up a business. So when I'm not hanging out in the Northridge office during the week, during the week I, I run a small business on the side and I make websites for people. Um, 
is, is the summary of what I do. But when I started out this business, I sat down with a friend of mine um, who's a consultant and chatted a little bit about the strategy that I was going to put in place for my business. One of the first questions he asked me is he said, Chris, what is the problem that your business is solving? What is it that you're doing that people actually need? Why would someone engage you? And in some ways, we're kind of doing um, a, a sort of more, way more big picture version of that tonight. And we're asking, what is the problem that Christianity solves? Why do we need God in our lives? So let's get into it. If you've got your Bible open and ready to go, um, it's uh, Romans chapter 1, starting from verse 18. We're going to go through to verse 25. So I'm reading from the NIV, but if you've got a different version, that's okay. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Good start. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. 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 Really? It's a bit heavy, huh? Just a little bit. Now, something that you'll realize um, if you've read Romans or if, if you're reading Romans for the first time with us here is that this book is reasonably dense. When you read, when you read through, it's, it's quite hard to just kind of skim read and get the main points um, because the way that Paul's writing it, he's being very intentional and the, the words that he's using, he's being very careful with the way that he's explaining things. And so I just want to really briefly unpack what just happened um, so that we have it right in our minds. And I'm actually going to switch the verse order around a little bit more so that it it makes a bit of sense for us. But on the next slide, um, we have a bit of an outline. So verses 19 to 20, um, God it kind of takes us back to creation. It takes us back to the beginning. And it says, From the start of the world, from when God created all things and created humanity, God revealed himself to us. But then in 21 to 23, we learn that instead of responding to God, instead of worshipping God, we rejected him and chose our own way. In verses 25, uh, 24 and 25, it, we learn that God basically said, well, if that's what you want, then that's what I'll give you. And then finally, I feel like verse 18, right at the start, it actually kind of it wraps up what, what this verse is trying to say, which is God was upset. It didn't make him happy when we chose to reject him. And so what are we supposed to do with that? What do we do? How do we read a passage like that and fit that in with the rest of what we believe about God? You know, we, we sang tonight about this loving God, this living hope, 
this wonderful saviour who, um, who comes and carries us out of the darkness. And so how does this angry, wrathful God that we hear about in verse 18, how does that fit with what we sang about tonight? Now, I want to do two things tonight to try and um, unpack this, which I've got on the next slide. The first, um, I want to ultimately talk about sin, um, so towards the back end, and how understanding sin really helps us to deal with this passage and, and work out what it means. But to start out with, I actually want to have a look, a, a look at the, the book of Romans, understand some of the context of this book as a whole, because I think it really helps us to interpret what's happening here. I think sometimes when we, when we read a book of the Bible, we're often tempted to read it from, as if it was actually written to us. You know, like, like somehow Paul was writing to us um, in the 21st century in Australia, in Sydney. And, you know, I think it's absolutely incredible that the book of Romans, and in fact, the whole New Testament, um, it, you can almost read that way. It can almost read as if thousands of years after it was written, it reads as if it was written to us. Um, I think that's amazing the way the Bible does that. Um, but by understanding the background, understanding who Paul was actually writing to and why, we can start to get a, a picture of his original meaning um, and, and extract some of the theology that's behind the words that Paul is using here. Now, when you come to any New Testament book, it's a really good idea to ask three really key questions about it. The first one is, who is writing this book? So the author. Secondly, who is it being written to? which is the audience. And finally, why is the author writing to the audience? What is their purpose? Now, often when you, try, when you are reading books in the New Testament and you come across this question of authorship, um, you find all of these scholars in, who are fancy people who, who work in seminaries, and they all argue about who really wrote the text, um, which can be a little bit unhelpful. Um, but in this case, it's actually really easy. There's not really any serious theologian who would debate that it's Paul the Apostle who wrote the book of Romans. However, when we have a look at the, uh, the audience, things start to get a little bit more interesting. What we learn is that from reading the book of Romans and also looking at the history um, that we get of this time, uh, most likely the Roman church was this series of um, independent small churches um, who gathered around the city. Um, you could almost call them an association of independent churches. Which is a, that's a little vineyard joke. Um, sorry. Just ignore that. Um, interestingly, the, the church in Rome, they weren't actually founded when the Roman church started, writing here to a church that he didn't actually start. And we're not entirely sure how the Roman church started. But really importantly, uh, we also learn, and if, as you read Romans, you'll, you'll notice this, that there was this massive conflict between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians were the ones who'd been Jews and they'd been converted. And they thought it was really important to keep practicing all the things of the law. So they were saying to everyone else, you know, uh, if you're a Christian, you can't eat bacon. That's not okay. It's not in the list. Um, if you're a bloke, you've got to get circumcised. And so understandably, the Gentiles weren't too excited about that. Um, so the Gentiles are non-Jews who'd become Christians. Now, yeah. So... Um, so the Gentile Christians understandably didn't want to take on the law. And in fact, they actually went um, further than that. And they said, well, the Jewish nation, you guys have kind of fulfilled your purpose now. So, you know, we don't really need to worry about any of that. And, and as we explore the audience, 
um, we start to, it starts to reveal the purpose for Paul's writing. And I think there are two really key things. The first one is he's writing um, to a church that he didn't found because he wants to lay out the gospel and he wants to make sure they understand it. And because Paul was intending to visit Rome, he wanted to send his core message ahead of him. But then perhaps more importantly, I think Paul was writing because he wanted to unify a really divided church. And so how do these things help us to understand this particularly heavy passage that we've just read? Well, I think there's two things. Firstly, is we need to appreciate that Romans 1, 18 and 25 is the starting point in a much longer argument. There's this um, great saying from N.T. Wright. He says, if you take a half-truth or part of the truth and you make it your whole truth, it becomes an untruth. You see, if we stop at Romans 1, then we get an incomplete picture of God and an incomplete picture of the gospel. You can't take Romans 1 without also taking Romans 8, which says that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. Secondly, considering the purpose, I think it's important to realize at this point that um, Paul, in writing to the Romans, he's not trying to wave the proverbial stick at non-believers. That's not what he's doing at all. In fact, his audience is, is Christians. I think in, in starting his letter to the Romans this way, he's saying to both the Jewish and the Gentile Christians, guys, you are both in the same boat. We are all affected by this. And so when we consider, first, that this is the starting place of a much longer argument, and secondly, that Paul's not trying to wave the stick at non-believers, he's actually trying to unify the church. I think we realize maybe there's more to this passage than what we get from just a a quick reading. Now, I wonder whether when I was reading this passage or when I was explaining it afterwards, I wonder whether it made you a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Because when I first had a look at this passage and said, oh my goodness, Matt, what have you done? What have you given me to preach on? Um, I, I was a little bit uncomfortable. And the reason is this. A few years ago, I was, um, I was leading worship at this like, evangelistic event. So I did a couple of songs. It's at a school. Um, there's a whole bunch of like, New Year 7 kids who are all here. And they thought, oh, well, let's get all the Year 7 kids together and do some worship and tell them the gospel. So I led a couple of songs. And then this preacher get, gets up. And now, to be fair to him, I think he was doing the absolute best job he, he, he could. And I'm sure that there were kids that, that day that gave their lives to Jesus. But as he was preaching, I became really uncomfortable. He started off his gospel presentation like this. He said, imagine that you're a pretty good person. You know, you don't really need God. You're not like a a terrible, horrible person. You know, you sin, let's just say you just sin three times a day. That's pretty good. But you do that three, three times a day, seven days a week, then 52 weeks a year. And then if by the time you're 82 years old, if you pass away when you're 82, then you will come before God and you'll say, oh God, I was pretty good in my life. I only sinned 89,544 times. And then he said, but God's standard is zero. God's standard is zero sins. And it wasn't so much what he was saying that made me really uncomfortable, although we'll soon find out that anyway. But this question came up in my heart that I think this passage invokes, which is how can a loving God get upset when we fail an impossible task? 
How could God be loving if he sets us up to fail, if the standard is zero? And it says just a few verses later in Romans that there is not one who is righteous. You see, that's not what Paul is saying here, is it? I want to suggest that sin is not a failure of compliance. Sin is a failure of purpose. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's start in verse 23, uh, which says that we exchange the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then a little bit later, it says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Have you ever wondered why, if you've read through the Old Testament, have you ever wondered why it's, it seems to be worshipping idols that really makes God upset? Of all of the things that Israel done, it's this idol worship that really bugs him. Um, you know, I think in the time of ancient Israel, this idea of building a temple and putting, you know, relative to the neighboring nations, building a temple and putting an, like an idol or an image of, a, of, this, um, of your local God, it was fairly common practice. So in some ways, it wouldn't have seemed like um, such a big deal. But I wonder if you've ever considered that our God has a temple, not the one in Jerusalem. Our God has a temple, and he has an image in the temple. Our God's temple is creation, and the image of himself is us. You see, when God created humanity, which Paul's reminding us here in verse 19, when God created humanity, um, he gave us this, this image-bearing role. And one, a, good, a good analogy to look at the role that God gave us is, is kind of like we're an angled mirror. Our job, our created purpose, is to reflect the glory of God to creation and to reflect the praises of creation back to God. Does that make sense? So we're like this angled mirror. But when we sinned, when we chose to do things our own way, and when we, we chose to worship ourselves instead of God, that mirror was shattered. And our relationship with God was broken. You know, sometimes I think we get into this habit of thinking um, that sin is all about breaking these arbitrary rules that God puts up. You know, he likes these things and so you can do them, but he doesn't really like these things so you can't do them. If you do them, you're very naughty. But I think it's really helpful at this point, and I've got a little diagram for this, um, to separate out sin from sinful behavior. You see, as I've already said, sin is fundamentally a failure of purpose. Whereas sinful behavior is what we do when we act out of that brokenness. And so you might rightly ask at this point, well, does that mean that then we can do whatever we want? Well, no, it doesn't. But it means that our mo- when we approach God, when we approach, think about our behavior, our motivation is different. The gospel suddenly is not about sin management, but it's about asking the question, how can I reflect God's glory to creation, to the people around me, um, to the people in my world? How can I reflect God's glory to them and reflect the praises of creation back to God? Suddenly, when we have a restored purpose, then our behavior becomes restoring behavior. So if sin is a failure of purpose, 
and not compliance, then I want to suggest that actually in verse 18, God's wrath, his anger is justified. God doesn't hate people who failed an impossible task. He hates sin, which is the work of the kingdom of darkness that separates us from him. Sometimes I think in the church we get into this habit of thinking about, um, about the world and we, we think that the world is our enemy. You know, we'll say stuff like, oh, the world says this and the world says that. You know how God feels about the world? God loves the world. The world's not our enemy and in many ways the world is our mission field. John 3.16 says that God loves the world and how much? So much that he gave his only son for the world. Ephesians 6 says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against people. Those non-Christians, they're not our enemies. We're called to love them. Our battle is against the kingdom of darkness. Our battle is against the enemy. Our battle is against all the powers of darkness and against sin. And so, what does that mean for us? If sin is not about a failure of compliance, but a failure of purpose. If the object of God's anger is sin and not necessarily us as humanity, does that mean we're off the hook? Does that mean we're okay? Well, it doesn't, at least according to Romans 1. Remember, part of a much bigger story. Because, first of all, the failure of purpose that I talked about that ha- at this point in Romans hasn't been dealt with. And as fallen people, as a fallen humanity, we're still defined by sin. Now you might say, well, I don't worship idols. I come to church and I worship God. But you know what idols were really about in the Old Testament? These these, uh, carvings of wood and stone. You know, you read through the, the Old Testament and the Israelites, they just keep going back to these idols. And you're like, surely you guys would get this right. You get the impression they're just doing it for kicks. But did you know that Baal, one of the key false gods in the Old Testament, Baal was the god of rain. And so if you're living in an agrarian society and your neighbor's worshipping the god of rain, you might be tempted to do the same. Asherah, another one of the key false gods that keeps coming up in the Old Testament, Asherah was the god of fertility. And if you're part of a culture in which, in which family is everything, Um, and your wealth is counted in your descendants, then maybe you might be tempted to pray to Asherah. You see, fundamentally, what an idol is, an idol is not a carving. An idol is an object of misplaced worship. And I want to suggest that today we still have idols, but they're a little bit less obvious. Maybe the object of your misplaced worship is wealth. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's financial security. Not that that's a bad thing, but you're not meant to worship it. Maybe your idol is owning property on the north shore of Sydney. We laugh quietly. Maybe your idol is traveling the world or wanderlust. Maybe your idol is sexuality or pornography. You get the picture. And so, I believe, we arrive at the problem. What is the problem that Christianity solves? First of all, we know that sin is not a failure of compliance, but a failure of purpose. 
And fallen humanity is still defined by this failure of purpose. And rightfully so, our loving God is upset at this injustice that sin has wreaked upon us. And so how do you solve that? How do you fix that problem? You know, in some ways, I feel like this complete picture of sin that we have, it's so much worse than we give it credit for, isn't it? It's so much more fundamental than we had expected. But it's that that reminds us that what Jesus did is so much more incredible, is so much more profound than we give him credit for. Now, I'm pretty much at the end of my talk, but I think it would be an absolute travesty to unpack the issue of sin and not at least touch on the incredible, incredible solution that God gives us. Now, Matt's going to actually talk. This is kind of like part one, and Matt's going to do part two next week, so I don't want to give too much of the story away, um, just in case you don't know it yet. But what I want to do to finish, and then we're going to have a, a bit of prayer ministry, what I want to do to finish is actually read from the book of Romans and let Paul speak for himself. Because remember that what we've discussed tonight is the opening of an incredibly long and profound letter. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit further down from Romans 6. And I'm going to read from the message because I think um, it makes it a little bit easier to follow Paul's, Paul's writing. But Romans 6 in the message says this. So what do we do? I asked you that question tonight. What do we do? Do we keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. We've left the country where sin is sovereign. How can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we were lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father, so that we can see where we're going in our new grace, sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? The old way of life that we've talked about tonight, the old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that miserable sin life. No longer are we at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this, that if we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of death being the final word. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. But God he speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That is what Jesus did. How good is Jesus? Why don't we stand?
Wow. Well, Jesus, we just want to start by saying thank you. Lord, we've unpacked tonight the problem of sin, the failure of purpose that happened right at the beginning. But Lord, we are just in awe of the fact that you gave everything to save us from that place. Lord, that you have restored our purpose. Lord, you have restored our identity. You have restored our calling. And Lord, that you are continuing to shape us more and more into who we were meant to be, into your likeness, Jesus. Lord, I just want to thank you for this incredible letter um, that Paul wrote to the Roman church, that we can learn about your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. And Lord, right now, I just want to pray that you, these words that we've just read from Romans 6, that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ, I pray that that would be the reality in every single one of our lives, Lord. Lord, I want to thank you that, um, that you were willing to give everything. You were willing to give your own son to rescue us from death, to rescue us from sin. And Lord, in response, we just say that you are so worthy of all of our praise. You are so worthy of all of our admiration. Lord, you are so worthy of all of our love and all of our lives. And so we say thank you. We say yes and amen to the promises that you have for us, Lord. And we just thank you once again, Lord, for Jesus.